Well, good morning. By the way, this is like, these are my people because I'm normally the one that like sits in the back of the room and this is like a half room, you know, that's full back, you know, there to the back and that's the way I like it. Just want you to know that you're my kind of people this morning. Uh, and I spit, so that's even better that you're far. I yeah, might want to back up, Charles. I want to talk about a major buzzword this morning, and I want to specifically talk about how Jesus was the OG deconstructionist, as I'm calling him. To get there, our passage that Austin just read a moment ago wants us to be thinking about wineskins and how they speak to whether or not we will miss out on the next new thing that God is always doing. But first, a story about a riot. As soon as the music conductor stepped onto the platform, the audience was outraged and broke out in an uproar. That was the testimony of one of the dancers in the company that evening. From the composer's own memory, the riot began after the musicians played the overture and the curtain rose on the opening act. By all accounts, there were like some 40 people that were arrested that night. Some kind of musical night, isn't it? Anger, outrage, disgust. You would think that I was describing the latest march over police brutality, but this was the infamous reaction to the premiere of Igor Stravinsky's avant-garde musical work, The Rite of Spring. This is said to be perhaps the most famous scandal in the history of the performing arts, which took place at a new theater in Paris on the 29th of May, 1913, exactly 109 years ago to this very day. What was it about the rite of spring that stirred up so much controversy to invoke a riot? In short, it shattered everyone's expectations. You see, the consumption of music at that time was being dictated by the masters, those like Beethoven, Mozart, Brahms, Wagner, and a score of others. In that era, for music to be pleasing to the public and acceptable, certain rules and customs had to be followed uh, that related to music theory in order for that to be the music that people wanted. Stravinsky's composition was bold, and in many ways it ignored the rules. It was angular, dissonant, and completely unpredictable. When the curtain rises on the opening movement, the audience encounters this loud, pulsating, rhythmic chord that repeats over and over again with irregular accents and all without a distinguishable melody. It sounds something like this. Let me see if I can do it. Sounds spring-like to you? Ah, oh, I love spring. Well, his composition was a turning point. If you know anything about history of music, it granted a permission, really, of sorts to stray from traditional codes and rules, which paved the way, really, for modern music and many of the composers that followed. He is one in a long line of individuals who we say were before their time. Dr. Martin Luther King, another of this type, 
preached a sermon on October 17, 1954 in Montgomery, Alabama. He said, new and creative ideas throughout history are often not accepted when the historical atmosphere at the time is not sufficiently new and strong to contain them. And Dr. King would know. As examples to prove his point, he talked about the racial visions of Henry Wallace. He talked about the German reformer Martin Luther, Abraham Lincoln, and Jesus of Nazareth. To me, this week, it's been sobering to think about how we have killed, literally, our greatest heroes over concepts that we likely would celebrate and embrace today. So it begs the question, then, what will we miss in our time or just around the bend because new ideas will be met with old mindsets? Jesus says it doesn't work. One has to become as new wineskins or else the skins will burst, ruining the wine. Jesus often used common items of the day in his teachings. In the ancient Near East, containers were formed using animal skins, usually sheep hide. These bottles, if you will, had to be malleable. For in the process of winemaking, fermentation uh, releases gases that cause the hide to expand and to stretch. It had to be flexible, yet strong enough to withstand the tension. You see, Jesus knew he was bringing something into the world that was fully new. The trajectory of civilization was headed in one direction. Dr. King speaks of it as a long caravan that had been moving toward the city of legalism, but now is shifting and moving toward the city of grace. And that shift was no small task for Dr. King or for Jesus. The city of legalism, how often that is true. It speaks of old wineskins which have already formed into their shape. They would dry that way once they've been stretched. It was secure so long as it wasn't expanded any further. Does that sound familiar? Have you known examples of that in your own life? I don't need to get into all the reasons. It sounds like we're going through that right now. For wineskins, any pressure to mold that into a new shape would burst the container altogether. That could be said of religion in Jesus' time. In fact, that was Jesus' critique, wasn't it? Religion had become rigid and merely useful for housing an old, outdated expression of faith. For Jesus, the religious were so resolute on upholding laws and customs that they had forgotten why those laws were there in the first place. And when the new wine was ready to be poured out, it was hardly a capable vessel for carrying it forward, much less giving it to thirsty souls. And I want to be clear this morning, the new will inevitably and always come. A new understanding of what it means to be human, a new breakthrough or discovery in the scientific community, a new era, a new expression or challenge, the new will always come, and it will always ask of us to see our world anew. There's an old saying in philosophy that goes, if you want to get good people to do bad things, give them ideology. Interesting statement. 
for many, defending beliefs can get confused for the life of faith itself. One can easily slip into idolatry such that over time, for the sake of that defense, you begin to do the very evil you set out to undo. That's true of religion. That's what I've seen. But it's also true of society, isn't it? Ideologies can turn into systems of oppression and downright evil, all in the name of preservation, can't they? To play this out, I want to ask you a question. How's the quartering of soldiers going for you and your family these days? Everybody doing good with the quartering of soldiers? Aren't we glad that through the years, by some stroke of wisdom, we've been able to amend that outdated law? The Second Amendment, as we've already talked about, Pastor Charles brought up earlier, is a hot topic this week, and for good reason. When it was established, a gun could shoot one round per minute, maybe two, if you were really quick. But as our tech has evolved, our guns can now shoot up to 100 rounds per minute. And yet, with white-knuckled grip, we refuse to amend these laws as if they were the thing we were serving, not our people. And that's idolatry. In light of this past week, I will go as far as to say that that neglect is pure evil. And we have to do better. This reminds me of railroad tracks. Did you know that the distance between the rails of a railroad track is four feet, eight and a half inches? I didn't either. It's a very odd number. This is the U.S. standard railroad gauge because that's the way they were built in England. And American railroads were built by British expatriates. And why did the English adopt that particular gauge for railroad tracks? Well, because the people who built the pre-railroad tramways used that gauge. You see, they were locked into that because they were using the tools that were also used to build the wagons. Four feet, eight and a half inches. That was the agreed-upon distance between wagon wheels. Any other size, and the wheels wouldn't match the old wheel ruts in the road. So who built the old rutted roads? Well, the first roads in Europe were were built by Imperial Rome for the benefit of their legions. You guessed it, four feet, eight and a half inches. That was the width that a chariot needed to be in order to fit two rear ends of a horse in front of it. Isn't that just how people are sometimes? The horse's rear end as well. But that's often the case. We put the cart before the horse, so to speak. We cling to customs and laws in the name of that's just how it's always been done. We serve our religious beliefs over serving community. And if you don't hear anything else about this sermon this morning, I want you to hear this. Belonging is more important than believing. How do we ever miss this when we look at the life and the mission of Jesus Christ? Belonging is more important than believing. For this community that is River Church, we have to be more defined in relational terms by, than by the tenets of our beliefs. If you know anything about this church, we don't have you sign off in some doctrinal statement in order to be a member here, and I'm grateful for that. We value your perspective, your journey, and we feel like it's a beautiful place in our community to have that perspective and to do life together, enriched by that perspective. 
Community does not seek uniformity, just unity. How much weight do I personally give to someone's beliefs on baptismal practices, whether you believe in full immersion or sprinkled as an infant, or whether or not you believe in a literal six-day creation? All of those things are fun to talk about, but it really, in the end, does not turn the dial of God's heart. At the end of the day, as one of your pastors here, I'm much more interested in how you care for your neighbor, how you show up as a peacemaking presence for those around you. It may be that our talk centers around terms of belonging, like how we can partner together, how we can lock arms to advocate for those around us. Believing belonging over belief, and always in that order. The writer of James understood this. In chapter 2, we're given this diatribe of how faith, without fleshing out its, uh, being fleshed out in good deeds, is dead. It says in verse 19, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that. You can hear the sarcasm. The point is made clear in this passage. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. This called to mind for me this week what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls religionless Christianity. After spending one year in postdoc work at Union Seminary here in NYC, Bonhoeffer went on and taught children's Sunday school and led a women's Bible study at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. By all accounts, the community he encountered there, um, they said, fixed in him this mindset that he was prepared now to die for his neighbor. For him, they were the Jews that were being slaughtered back home by the Nazis. You see, it wasn't his exposure to cerebral European philosophy and theology that prepared Bonhoeffer to die for the cause of love. It was seeing love acted out in community. Oh, that's what it looks like to serve each other. Belonging over belief. And if we keep it in that order, the writer James says we will be doing right. I want to spend the last few minutes here talking about how we can avoid becoming dry, crusty, old wineskins. So turn to your neighbor and say, don't be crusty, old wineskins. Some of y'all enjoy that a little too much. If you've lived anywhere on this planet other than under a rock the last few years, you are well aware of the buzzword deconstruction. Its practice has become so commonplace, especially among Christians, that it seems to be the popular expression of faith in our time. Joshua Harris wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Maybe you're familiar with this one. This book was at the center of evangelical purity culture in the late 90s and early 2000s and was formational for my generation. Recently, within the past handful of years, he broke the news that he was divorcing his wife and really renouncing everything that he wrote in the book. He claimed that he was deconstructing his Christian faith, and that got the attention of many from my generation especially. From what I understand, he even today claims no faith at all. 
And there have been other key Christian leaders through the years who have gone through this process of deconstruction, which really is kind of a purging of the toxic baggage of historical Christianity. And the way I see it, it's kind of like a bursting of these old wineskins at the infusion of the wine of postmodernity. Perhaps many of you have gone through this process, as I suspect many of you have. I know I've been kind of going through that the past few years. I want to talk about how I feel Jesus is the OG deconstructionist, if I can put it that way. To be clear, Jesus' version of deconstruction was somewhat different than today's popular trend. For Jesus, deconstructing your faith wasn't some momentary or seasonal departure in the task of constructing one's tower of beliefs. Having a belief system at all really never seemed to be all that important to the Jewish rabbi. For Jesus, deconstruction was a lens, a way of seeing and understanding the world. It was really a necessity if the kingdom of God was ever to be manifested in the here and now and not just in the age to come. This idea of deconstructing leads with the understanding that language and concepts are imperfect and that there is slippage in meaning given changing times and context. Let's take the concept of love as an example. How was love understood and expressed in 800 BCE, before the Common Era? How was love lived out, say, in the Middle Ages? What did love look like in the 1960s here in the U.S.? We could say that love takes on different meanings in different times and different places, and yet at the same time we say that love is a constant. In fact, we say that God is love. But if the 800 BCE version of love meant you shouldn't treat your slave the way you treat animals, and the version of love today is expressed through equality and full affirmation, then which love are we talking about when we say God is love? Language often fails us. There is then this humility in the application and the pursuit of love which gives room for expansion and new understanding. We can do the same with the concept of justice. In our minds, we have this idea of what justice is, and yet as soon as we act on justice, there is still the understanding that justice can be so much more. There's always a purer and more perfect expression of justice that will meet a new and future challenge that we'll inevitably face. That's why Dr. King called justice a long-bending arc, not a static point on the page. But is justice as we know it today the same justice that was being pursued in the pages of the Old Testament? Thankfully, no. But we give ourselves to the work of justice always with the humility to be led in its most relevant expression. Author Peter Enns, in his book, How the Bible Actually Works, uh, which if you know anything about Peter Enns, that's a sarcastic title, Um, he says, for the past to have any vitality in the present, it has to be reshaped for the present. For the past to have any vitality in the present, it has to be reshaped for the present. 
he was talking about concepts like these, love and justice, those that are anchored in the pages of Scripture and at the root of our ethics. These can be and they should be expressed in new ways over time because the gospel is alive, it's breathing, and is always ready to meet the reality of each new day. Just in the past few weeks, I've talked with a handful of people who quite desperately needed to hear this word. People will often reach out to the church, usually with some form of I'm gay or lesbian or trans and have always been told that my lifestyle will send me to hell. And I want to know what the church and the Bible has to say about that. And what we uncover nine times out of ten is that people really are grappling with their fundamental upbringings maybe where their parents, sometimes their church leaders, have weaponized Scripture in order to try to change their child or their church member. You can imagine the relief they express when I assure them that God fully accepts them just as they are because love is unbound to the limitations we might find even in its biblical expression. I try to help them to see that understanding the full capacity and expression of true love is always unfolding and never stagnant, and pursuing it will always lead to life and never death. So in closing, what do all these word games about meaning and context have to do with new wineskins and deconstruction? Let me try to land this plane for us. The way I see it, if I can be as clear and honest as possible, we really become less loving when we live from an old construct of what love should look like. To the extent that we feel as if we have to protect that particular expression of love, it becomes an idol in our lives. And this is really true in all avenues of life, faith, and ethics. This isn't relativism. It's contextualizing a gospel message that is evergreen, if we believe that, and always seeking to understand who is my neighbor. When we stop contextualizing that question, Jesus says we are like old wineskins that will burst when new wine is ready to be poured out. The way I see it, Jesus wants you to deconstruct not as a momentary season in your faith journey, but as a way of seeing the world that lives with a posture of humility that always leaves room for the expansion of new wine. May it be so. Let's, let's pray. God of love, God of justice, help us to live with deconstructed hearts and minds that leave us at the ready for the new thing you are always doing. Let us not grow stuck in our old mindsets and miss out on life abundant. For the sake of being what you have called us to be for our communities and for the world. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.